Hello one and all and welcome to this episode of The Gaming Podcast, the official podcast of Gaming Magazine. You can check out more from gaming by visiting gamingmag.com. That's G-A-Y-M-I-N-G mag.com. Remember that new episodes of The Gaming Podcast come out every two weeks. If you're new to the podcast, please click subscribe and that way you won't miss another episode. Later in the show, I'm going to be joined by the creators of The Pride Warriors, Gary Adrian Randall and Jason Moriarty, uh, which is an awesome, 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 hilarious, animated, political web series. Uh, more on that later. But first off, I'm joined by games PR guru. It's Izzy. Hello, everyone. I love that you introduce me as that every time I have a conversation <laughs> with you. <laughs> it really boosts my ego. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. Thank you. How's things? Things are good, you know. I think we're all um, trying to get on as well as we can in this climate. Um, obviously, lots of things have changed for so many people. Um, yeah, just kind of trying to be my best PR guru self as best <laughs> I can in right now. We were just talking off air about the fact that you started a new job uh, literally on the cusp of lockdown. Uh, and obviously one of many people that, that have uh, been through this and you're just in a position where you haven't actually set foot in your employer's office yet. Yeah, um, I actually ended my old job the week lockdown began. So um, my entire experience at my current role at Square Enix has been um, via Zoom. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't actually know whether my colleagues exist or if they merely are a figment of the boxes on Zoom. Yeah, just just some digital creation. An AI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we kick off, um, I really want to talk about, uh, real quickly, um, we had an announcement this week um, about our gaming awards. Um, this is something that I'm ridiculously proud to be doing. Uh, the gaming awards will take place in February in 2021. Uh, you can check out everything to do with them at gaming awards g-a-y-m-i-n-g awards.com uh we've got nine categories three of them are already open and accepting nominations so get out there get nominating uh and find out more about it it's actually going to be a really really good few months building up to an amazing show in london so that's really cool um we are going to talk today on the podcast about digital stuff and particularly sort of digital future stuff. Um, and I know, Izzy, that you want to talk about the future of digital-only releases. Yes, so um, I have been doing quite a lot of research this week into the way that the industry is moving forwards in terms of um, weighing up the benefits and the repercussions of moving into a digital-only release space. So as we've seen from the Sony conference where they unveiled, I think, the first PlayStation that's not included a physical disk drive um, as an option for the PlayStation 5, I think that has sparked quite an interesting conversation amongst the industry, um, whether the future will actually be digital only and whether physical retail sales will still exist. Um so I, I wanted to do a bit of research on this and get some statistics that back this up. And an interesting thing is that um, since 2018, which is um, when this piece of research on Statista was made, um, a record 83% of all computer games were sold in digital form. 
Um, And that has kind of been an exponential increase since about 2010. It's gone up quite steadily and continues to do so with a spike in 2018 being the most recent survey. Um, And I just thought this was a really interesting kind of statistic, just making predictions for the way that the industry is going to be in the future. Um, Obviously, as a PR person, it's quite important to know what we're trying to sell to the public and the kind of things that we're trying to grow awareness of and 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 gain conversation about and it it's quite a difference when you're not you're not selling physical products because that then paves the way for not doing things in a physical format as well because you don't have to you know show someone a a skew um you don't have to market it that way and at the same time as it gets rid of a lot of facets of the industry i think it actually adds a lot of them as well um there is the potential that certain amounts of teams might be reduced if if retail is no longer a kind of option for game developers but i think making up for that there will actually be quite a few new opportunities um, and I actually, I wanted to find out if there was any sort of sociological reason for this. And we're going deep already. I love this. <laughs> we're five minutes in and we're already, already into sociological discussions. Sociology, yeah. <laughs> um, it's very, it's, it's a very minor thing uh, that I think a lot of people, especially millennials such as myself, will relate to. It's kind of the rise of minimalism. And it's a thing that has occurred throughout history in times of kind of economic turmoil, political turmoil, things are getting rough in the world. People start to shed their worldly belongings and and try to live a more minimalistic, clutter-free life. And I think we're kind of seeing this now with millennials and Gen Z moving towards a kind of clutter-free existence. Um, There's been a lot of research that says that millennials especially want to buy experiences not things Hmm. and i think games are kind of a good example of this um when looking into kind of the kind of people that purchase games nowadays a lot of them are in the 15 to 35 range that's a big market that's the primary market of games and a lot of those well all of those people are millennials or gen z and taking into consideration that they want to buy experiences rather than things it kind of makes sense that that demographic is leading towards buying digital products more and more year on year there's uh, this is yeah there's, there's so many things to unpack here i think because unpack because um for me there's there's so many i'm conflicted because on the one side of things i like my bookcase being full of games cases I think that's the kind of it's that's the epitome of like peak gamer is having those sort of like those walls just full of games cases and objects and and whatever else. But the flip side of it is um if your bookcase is further away from your sofa and your consoles in the other corner, if you're sat there and going, "Well, I'm bored of this game. I want to play this game now." And you have to physically get up and walk to the bookcase <laughs> and get the game case and walk to the console. And for me that's kind of like, like oh, I just wish I'd got the damn digital copy. So I the the minimalism thing is interesting um because other people I know hate the fact they have to have 
all of these bloody game cases and what the hell do I do with them sort of thing so exactly I which is really interesting. I, I can so, so again, that's I can see both sides of that. The other bit that always worries me with digital only is by going digital only, it would single handedly uh, sever all of the resale opportunities that secondhand games. And for me, so many games I've picked up secondhand um, for a tenner in the bargain bin or for a uh, pre-owned or at a, at a junk sale or whatever. And for me, that's kind of like, if we lose that altogether, then you're going to be in a world where everybody, no matter what place or what time or how, how long the game's been out for, you're going to be paying hefty prices for a game because it's new. And that's always, that's a big concern for me from a sort of a, an accessibility an economic kind of accessibility angle yeah for sure i think there's also a, a conversation to be had about the resilience of physical retail shops as well like we saw the mm. downfall of blockbuster happen and i can remember picking up final fantasy 10 in the in the bargain bin in blockbuster and then that being like the premier game experience of my childhood and I think a lot of those experiences are because those retail stores exist, but we don't know for how long and we don't know if they will withstand time. Well, look, we're, we're certainly in a position, courtesy of COVID, that uh, physical shops have been a no-no for the last three or four months. But let's not dress it up purely as that. I mean, game in the UK has been coming and going a little bit and wavering. Uh, game stop, I always get confused, game stop in the US, uh, as opposed to GameSpot, GameStop in the US has been teetering on uh, bankruptcy for years. And so the model of going out and buying a product in a shop these days, I think is is a dying art. Um, I would wonder whether you'd still have value in buying a physical product from an online store and having it delivered. Um, but then the argument then is, if you don't need to go to a shop to get a physical product, then you just download the digital thing. And you don't have to go out at all. Yeah, exactly. And I think with with all the console innovation coming our way in the near future, I I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, a feature that where you could share games with friends and family who don't necessarily live with you or share a console with you in the future. Um, I think that would be a that that for me would be the step that I think the world would have to take is the ability to be a little less strict on who plays your digital game. I mean. I think I'm wrong now, but it wasn't until recently where if you'd bought a second Switch, it was a pay in the backside to try and move games that you'd already bought once over to a new console. And so, and heaven forbid, if you had two Switches and wanted to play them on, play the same game on two consoles, that's just a no-no. So I think some flexibility built into there. And also while I'm on the topic of Switch, um, the I think there's a, there's a discussion to be had around how much internal memory a lot of these consoles have because obviously digital downloads uh cause a lot more memory use um there's my partner plays uh final fantasy 14 and on our playstation 4 and look i'm cheap so we, we only got the base level playstation 4 if i'm being brutally honest with you yeah, same. that was, it, it, as the second console primarily we we're xbox but we wanted a bit of playstation action so we we got the um, two fifty odd gigabyte one, not the, the 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 really cheap one. 
Um, and it turns out that Final Fantasy XIV is 100 gigabytes. Uh, yeah, 100 gigabytes. So it's like <laughs> I literally now don't have access to the PlayStation 4 because it is literally a Final Fantasy machine. That's the, the entire point of that PlayStation is now just to play Final Fantasy 4. Yeah. So, yeah, that was... I, I think there's, there's work to be done. Um, and I think what's interesting as well, and I'm curious as to whether you think that if the world does go full digital... Um, Nintendo's a good example. They're notoriously bad at putting anything on sale and reducing the prices of anything. So to sort of counter maybe some of that, this game has been out a year, but hey, you want to still buy it new? I don't really because I could go to uh, GameStop or Game or CEX or wherever and and pick it up for a fiver pre-owned. Do you think that companies would have to be more aggressive in sailing and turning down their prices as the years go on? Yeah, absolutely. I think the return on investment that sales produce in a physical retail sense can't really be replicated in digital sales unless a measure like that is taken. And I don't think a lot of companies would be willing to give up those sale profits um, and the kind of um, PR and marketing opportunities that actually arises to get more people aware of your game. Every time a game goes on sale, more people know about it. And I don't think that is something that can be done if companies don't take an extra measure to um, replicate the physical sale model. I just thought, actually, you could theoretically do a trade-in concept of digital games. I could buy a game for £50, I could play it for six months or whatever, and then I could, in a sense, through the store, give it back um, uh, for a a certain amount of credit. It it leaves my hard drive. It leaves my cloud. Um, I get £15 credit or whatever in the store. I go and buy something else. Then, In a sense, it's like a... But you have to physically surrender like you would the physical copy. Yeah, like a digital bargain bin. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that could, think... that could be quite an interesting sort of concept of at least it, it you wouldn't be able necessarily to have a bargain bin, but you'd have your sale items, but you would have credit. So that would still mean that you're picking stuff up for cheap because you're using the credit that you've got given for it. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, the industry and companies will have to fit to evolve um, as yeah. they have done in the past. And I know that there's like a there's a different conversation I've seen around the internet going on that if digital only exists, then will one day consoles also not exist um, with things like Google Stadia? Yeah, we're sort of going down that path, aren't we? The Google Stadia, um, although that doesn't seem to be going too well. Um, it's way too early. It's totally. And I think that you and I have had this conversation before. I believe we were sat in London on this very podcast um, having this conversation because it is too early. Uh, people's internet is nowhere near as good as it needs to be. Um, I'm now the proud owner of 30 megabyte download. Um, <laughs> but but even, even according to Google's Stadia's website that sort of says how you can play these things, 30 is just about okay. Um to have your full 4K experience, you've got to be touching like 100. And it's like that is equally, A, difficult to get, uh, particularly if you're rural, and B, costs decent money. So, yeah, they're too early. Um, And I think one of the points that I think Matt made um, when he was reviewing it is that there's something nice about a console because it feels physical. 
Whereas, okay, you might be playing a digital game on a physical console, but for the Stadia to be completely in the cloud, um, you don't ever feel like you're in pure real ownership of that game. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you're, play, you're playing something that you've been allowed to play and then it might just be snatched away from you, even though you've paid for it. And I yeah. think that's always been a concern. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's when the sort of the sociological aspect of it becomes really interesting because it's it's it also has to come with a shift in mindset, not only a shift in technology. And the mindset has to fit that you don't want a physical object to represent a thing that you own and that you're mm. okay with it existing in an amorphous digital cloud. And I don't think we're quite there yet as a society, uh, in Western society as um, as a whole, but we might get there in the future. And the way that the statistics are at the moment, it feels like we're very slowly moving towards that, you know, because technology evolves much like animals and people do. It happens very slowly over a long period of time. And you only actually notice it when you come out the other end. Absolutely. And and, and to completely bastardise a quote from X-Men, uh, every now and again, a massive thing happens that gives uh, the whole experience a huge push. And we've, I think we've lived through that. And I think people that maybe people that enjoy, normally enjoy going to a game shop uh, to sort of thumb through all these empty cases and read the back of the cases and whatever else. And I, I get it. People enjoy that as a something to do on a Saturday um they haven't been able to do that but they found other ways of doing it and are they going to go back to doing it or have they realized that you don't have to leave the house um and it was really interesting what you mentioned earlier about the difference be- how if retail were to shut down yes people would lose jobs yes there would be a, a sea change both from the retail side of things but also from the, the the teams within games companies to do with promoting through retail but I, I imagine, as you as you suggested, that other places would pick that's maybe not necessarily the same staff, but the equal staffing level would pick back up again, purely because to sell digitally, you've got to be making more videos, you've got to be doing more streams, you've got to be doing all those sort of fun things to get your game in front of people digitally. That needs people to do that. Exactly. You need to market, find a way to market digitally to the the people who you would ordinarily be selling physical copies to you know, like parents or grandparents, uh, people who have small children or take care of small children, um, children themselves. <laughs> and yes. it's hard to kind of reach those people usually in digital marketing, but I'm sure there would be a new wave of innovation when it comes to that platform. I just imagine it's something like, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to use a UK reference, uh, Loose Women. Um, which is not a name calling. It's a TV show in the UK, um, <laughs> similar to The View in the States. Um, I'm, I just have visions of, of those ladies sort of sat there playing games on the show, telling people what to buy your grandkids for Christmas or what to buy your kids for Christmas, depending about your age ranges and stuff. But yeah, I, I think that's an interesting, an interesting place to leave it. Um, staying on the digital theme, um, I want to move on to talk about events. Now, obviously... 2020 has been an absolute washout for uh, in real life events and we've seen this huge shift of nearly every major event uh, to go digital. Um, there are still some events that are sort of penciled into the diaries uh, for later this year. Let's be honest, they're going to get cancelled and they're going to go digital too. Um, 
what do we think of all of that? I mean, personally, I've been really enjoying um, all of these different presentations and stuff on YouTube. Um, the specific one I wanted to talk about actually was E3. Now, I'd never been to E3. I was meant to go to E3 this year. I had my, my press pass. It was, e it was sat in my inbox. <laughs> I then promptly deleted it <laughs> in mid-April. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Luckily, I hadn't bought the flights and hotels or anything, so I didn't have to worry about that. But um however it has it's it's no it's no secret that e3 has been a bit on the rocks for the past few years anyway it, with various uh games companies not choosing to exhibit at e3 but ha maybe having something remotely or maybe just preparing a video to show at e3 which is kind of the same as just putting it onto youtube but they just paid a higher cost for it what do we think like are events going to come back? Are certain events going to be dead? Is is there such a shift into the digital sort of space? Like E3 packs a lot of people in, but you can bet your bottom dollar that millions more people watch all that content online. So just do it online. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective as a PR person, there is, there's pros and cons to both. And the pro of physical in real life events is that you know, you've got everyone in one place, you've got all the journalists you want to speak to all at once, they're in the moment. And sometimes that kind of immersed experience can lead to different kinds of content or different kinds of writings. And um, I, I think that sometimes maybe some game companies might be a bit worried that that can't be replicated in a digital event, that the same kind of writing and coverage can't actually be achieved. Um, if certain journalists or press or anyone aren't actually immersed in the world. And there are so many, there's so much money that goes into producing live events. It's the bread and butter of some major experiential events companies. Mm -hmm. And the, those are kind of all going to have to die out if we all go digital. Um, but the the pros and the cons, I think, are something that has to be weighed up on an individual basis and i think um i think it, it it's about whether the benefits of the unknown outweigh how scary it is yeah absolutely and i think that's it's a really fair point and it's something that i hadn't thought about which is I, mean, I probably should have as a journalist but the um the idea that if i'm sat there at home as a journalist uh watching a presentation or watching a video of a game or watching a, a playthrough or even having a playthrough of a game if i experience something and go mm, that's a bit crap then i probably won't write about it but if if a press person from that company if i'm at an event if i'm in the world um i'm already a bit hyped up anyway i mean i'm probably in a better mood um and so much of e3 and, and we're saying e3 but so much of these the big uh, the big event shows it's less about the video that you're playing on the screen. It's more about the world that you've built. I mean, case in point, it was the ridiculously cute uh, Animal Crossing world they built uh, at PAX East. And I imagine Nintendo are, are ruining that, <laughs> that high expense for one, what turned out to be one show of the year. Um, but as, I mean, it's a bad example because everyone's going to love Animal Crossing, but you would have stepped into that world and you're already immersed in the world of Animal Crossing. And, but if I'm playing stuff maybe that's um, a little bit more towards the indie end of the spectrum, uh, I, I know that um, Sold Out, for example, they had a great little installation at, uh, at PAX East. 
uh, and they had all of their developers there. They had all the press people there stood on people's shoulders. And so if somebody's encountering a problem with a game or if somebody's got stuck and they're getting frustrated, you can lean in, you can give them a nudge and it's, oh, that's fun. Whereas if you're sat at home as a journalist with no con- with, with no context, no um, world building, nobody sort of sat next to you going, this is really cool because of these reasons, you're potentially sort of losing people by having them in isolation. So I, I, I get that and I get the other side of it. But my, my fear is I'm not sure that, I mean, there's always going to be a fandom and I get people want to go to big events and, and hang out with people. But I think it's probably the onus now on the event organizers to prove how they're doing that safely. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I mean, the, the true test would be whether there's a way to replicate those really world building experiences in the digital sense. And Mm. I think it has to also come from a personal development standpoint as writers or as PR people and journalists and, it has to come with a mental shift of making an experience that is digital, but also able to communicate the themes and the emotions and the energy in an accurate enough way to be able to replicate the feelings and the experiences of being in that physical space on a well enough level to actually be able to have the same measure of, um, of engagement. Um, I don't think that's going to be easy. It's really difficult to make everybody suddenly go, uh, now I only like digital events and digital events are actually on the same level as physical events. But there's also a lot of pros, like they're a lot more accessible and Mm -hmm. so many more people are getting to see these things and have these experiences that they might not be able to have before. But the people who have had those experiences before feel like they're getting a lesser experience. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the issue that I think a lot of companies will step up to the plate and work to develop their their schemes and their their planning to elevate the level of digital events that they hold. Obviously, this is the first year that it's had to be this way. And in coming years, it may be a mix of both. Some events may be digital only, some events may be physical. But I think when it's not as much as for a um a terrifying environment as a global pandemic there's a lot more room to grow and to evolve into something that i think could be really good i mean yeah it, and i think again the, the the games industry like every other industry let's be honest is is guilty of standing still and going oh we've always done it this way we've been running these events since 1990 something or other and we've always had it in this hall and we've always had these people coming along to it and i think if we're allowed to say that anything good has happened from all of this, it is that it's changing people's minds. It is that it's it's forcing people to think differently. And yeah, that, that certainly this year, unprepared with maybe two months notice, um, I think they've, they've done a pretty good job. I think, but I think it's been basic, understandably, because nobody had to get their head around this. Like if you, you couldn't sit someone down and go, right, next month we're delivering this entire event digitally. Um, so there's been an awful lot of sort of Zoom stuff. There's been an awful lot of just you watch this YouTube video, which I think, oh, I was about to use a Ubisoft example. I apologize, everyone. I'm not talking about Ubisoft. Um, there are examples of games companies out there that have released videos as part of these montages uh, from Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, whatever, 
that um, have maybe left people a bit confused or uh, have left people sort of going, oh, I was expecting that character to show up. But in in the world of a physical event, you'd have had a press person on stage, you'd have had a presenter on stage to answer questions, to talk to people, to show off some stuff, to get Keanu Reeves along for no reason. Um, and and basically that for me is kind of where the, the missing bit is. So you're right. I think this year was like, it's a pass given what's going on. And it will be interesting to see how the sort of future of digital events does does grow. And I personally think there might be a role for VR in it. Um, I think that we probably, again, a couple of years too early, but I think the, the the notion of being able to just drop a headset on and be in a kind of virtual environment that replicates a show floor, and you can then choose to sort of go around and explore some areas and watch some content, maybe try a game in VR. Um, I, I, I wonder if that might be a, a an interesting sort of point of development. Yeah, and I guess the argument against VR has always been like, why would I experience this through a VR headset if I can just go outside and also experience it? But you know what? We can't go outside. Because uh, it keeps we, you away from the plague. And we haven't been able to go outside. I'm asthmatic. I literally haven't been outside in five months. Absolutely, <laughs> I would love I to walk through the woods with, with a VR headset. Um, and I think, I, yeah, I agree with you that it comes alongside a mental shift. And I'm really excited as a PR person in the industry to see what new opportunities that kind of unveils for us. Absolutely. And I, I think you mentioned it earlier, but um, it's also a really positive thing from an accessibility angle. Too many people can't go to these events, whether it's a price point, whether it's the, the, the travel. I mean, even, I mean, let's be honest at the moment, we could probably go to an event tomorrow uh, in Japan because they're more or less okay with everything now or Australia or New Zealand. Um, but is anyone going to go to America anytime soon the way they're going? Like there's a lot happening out there still. So realistically, I think from a digital point of view, it'd be, it's, it's more accessible. It's obviously ticks a lot more boxes regarding sort of disabled people being able to experience these things for the first time. People that have sort of various issues around large crowds. I mean, we all come, and, and let's not forget, obviously, we all come home from these things laughing about the fact we've got con flu. My God, it was the early coronavirus. <laughs> Everyone coming home is like, ha, 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 I'm ill, I'm <laughs> ill. And it's like, oh, my God, we're ill. That's what the response should have been. Not like, oh, wasn't it hilarious that I hung out with 10,000 people and I had a bit of a cough afterwards. And it's like, that's literally the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh. kind of terrifying when you think about it now. You stop and think imagine, about it. I can't imagine doing something like that as of right now um i can't imagine doing anything like going to a bar and, like, yeah uh, yeah i mean even that's yeah there's a um, major event it's just not doesn't feel feasible a test event i don't think it's happened yet i think it's happening in a couple of weeks time so germany being the greatly efficient good research types they are um germany are holding a concert for four and a half thousand people indoors in a hall um, but they've got four and a half thousand volunteers that have to be completely COVID free, uh, tested two days before the concert, et cetera, et cetera, uh, wearing masks and then being wired up with 101 different sensors. And then you go off in and then you enjoy the concert like you normally would. But the idea is it's designed to monitor exactly what happens when four and a half thousand people get together to enjoy a concert. 
and that's not just obviously the inter-crowd relationship it's the performer relationship is he like just spitting on everybody in the front in, in, in the front two rows or is he do you know what i mean like the whole mm-hmm. thing from start to finish um they were saying they had like they put fluorescent stuff on their hands so they can see the surfaces that get regularly touched they can check hand washing etc um so that's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out yeah um, that's pretty amazing and that might have I mean, we all know, look, we've, we're have we all guilty of going to these kind of mass events and coming back with a bit of a sniffle or something. Um, the number of people that go to these sort of, to a variety of LGBT parties and stuff that come back with, with a bit of a sore throat, not necessarily uh, a coronavirus thing. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, look, it, it, it's all out there. So if you had a way of getting to these events, coming back around to full circle, uh, if you had a way of getting to these events, even if they took place in real life, if you sat there thinking, I'm asthmatic, I'm asthmatic as well. Um, I don't particularly want to go to this event, but there is a way of going. Yeah, okay, you might not experience it in full HD, but equally, if you've got enough of an experience of being there, if you're press and you, let's say, work for a small independent LGBT outlet um, that can't afford to go to all these things, uh, it's great to sort of be able to sort of sit there and not just watch a video or not just play a, a standard press build demo. Um, some sort of better way of getting involved. Um, it's going to be really interesting. Like everything that's happening at the moment, it's going to be fascinating to see how this turns out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm I'm scared, uh, terrified, but also very excited. That's <laughs> literally the definition of my entire life. Um, <laughs> Izzy, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been really interesting to see how... Uh, the sort of future is going to be and it'd be it'd be fun to come back maybe next year and, and reflect on this and see exactly how right or wrong we were actually yeah, <laughs> we actually like were that. like a like a very gay time capsule <laughs> exactly yeah Tw- 12 <laughs> months later we we completely fucked it up and we don't know what we're talking about yeah um coming up after the break i'm talking to the creators of the pride warriors gary and jason uh but for now it's a big goodbye to izzy farewell everyone enjoy and... stay safe wear masks wash your hands all of the above uh and we'll be back after the break did you know that gaming magazine now has a discord channel come and enjoy more chat gossip and gameplay with your fellow gamers from around the world visit gamingmag.com forward slash discord to get started welcome back i'm joined by my special guest this week uh, it's jason moriarty and gary adrian randall the creators of the hugely homosexual web series the pride warriors Welcome, guys. Stop it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it's welcome back as well, because the last time you were here, we were talking about the wonderful Enter the Reveries, and now we're sitting here talking about the Pride Warriors. So somebody kick me off with who are the Pride Warriors? Okay, I'll take that one. Um, the Pride Warriors were really something that was inspired by costumes that me and my um, best friend Nadia made um, last year for Pride in New York. So we wanted to do something really cool because it was World Pride and we created these. We just said, you know, if you were a gay superhero, what would you be? And I, I chose gay gladiator. So I just made the gayest gladiator outfit I could think of. And she wanted to be like a trans Valkyrie. So we made her a costume too. Um, and we wore the costumes here for Denver Pride. And then we wore them in New York for World Pride and ended up at the front of the Pride Parade. It was really, really amazing. Um, but I wanted to do something more with the characters. So, and also, you know, I think it's important right now to make to make a statement if you're an artist. So, 
you know, Pride Warriors was sort of born, the inspiration was those costumes, but then they became like these gay superheroes. And it's sort of this vehicle for us to celebrate Pride and make people laugh, but also make a political statement in these trying times. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I, you, you mentioned, obviously, the, the sort of politics of it. Um, I introduced it earlier as kind of a political uh, comedic web series. Um, why is this an important story to tell right now? And more so, why is it important to put those kind of really political kind of nods into it? Well, one of the things that's been most important about the LGBT community is visibility, because people like to pretend that we don't exist, and it makes it easier for them to deny us our rights and control us. But at the end of the day, we're human beings, and it's a complete travesty that we've even been treated this way, even to the point where we ourselves don't think we necessarily deserve all the rights that other people have. And so visibility has always been super important, and Pride Warriors plays off of that because it's not just visibility. It's we're like taking every gay, we're pushing it as far as we can go and making it as gay as possible because like we're here, we're queer, let's hang a fucking chandelier. Like we're not hiding anymore. And I think in especially in these trying times, like they're coming for us. They're coming for everybody. And like right now, more than ever, it's important that we stand together, unite and be visible and show people that we're here and show people that we're not just people that are, we're not like secondary characters. We're not like sidekicks. We are human beings and we have political power. So it's time to start wielding that and start recognizing it as a community. The only way to do that is to unite as a community. And, you know, I feel like Pride Warriors can help create that sort of dynamic within our community. You know, and I think also uh, Gary and I found ourselves wanting to contribute to everything that's going on and kind of show our point of view on everything. And, you know, sure, we've marched in the protests and we, we've done a lot of the, the same things that other people are doing, but we found ourselves wanting to give back more. And we thought to ourselves, what could we kind of create um, that could get you know, immediate attention and kind of shine the spotlight a little bit more onto what's going on in the world? So that's uh, hence Pride Warriors came to be. And as well, it's it's not just um, all of the sort of the the queer bandwagons. There's a lot of uh, black uh, Black Lives Matter. There's uh, some other sort of like really positive pro uh, race messages built into there as well. There's the sort of the a lot of the anti-Trump stuff built into there. So it, it's there's there are layers of the sort of political messages. Did you, I guess the, the question is, why did you decide to sort of push the envelope that far? Because for those who haven't seen it, we're talking like South Park level, uh, poking things with a stick. and Possibly some would say a little bit too much, but is that important? It's absolutely important. I think here's the thing. Like there was a time whenever like even looking at a swastika in this country was considered like, you know, taboo. And now children have seen swastikas. Mothers are getting tear gas. Like, children are getting tear gas. Like, children are being held in cages. We have gone so far and we've skewed so far past the point of what is socially acceptable that it's not even funny. But the point of this administration from the beginning was to desensitize us to all of that and normalize it. And that is not okay in any way, shape, or form. The reason that we wanted to put these, the political messages, and especially what's going on in this country with Black Lives Matter, is long overdue and very important. It doesn't just affect the black community, it affects everybody, especially the marginalized community like us. And in my, in my mind, the LGBT community was created for marginalized people and oppressed people. And that doesn't just cover 
gays, lesbians, and bisexuals. The B can stand for the B can stand for black. The A can stand for allies. You know, like there's so many. To me, the LGBT community is this umbrella community of people that are oppressed, and I think the only way that we can truly make a change in this world and make a difference is to unite all those marginalized communities. So I don't see. We all have our own subcultures. We all have our own communities. But under the umbrella of marginalized and oppressed, we all fit together. Whether you're talking about LGBT people, people of color, women, immigrants, no matter what it is, like we all know what it is to be oppressed by the white patriarchy. And at this point, the white patriarchy is the one that is sending so soldiers out into the streets that have no names, t taking people and putting them in vans and hauling them away. Like that, there's no way that there's no world in which that is okay and we can't let it happen in this country and and pride warriors to me is this way of being able to reach all the people that are stuck in their homes you know and and make a send a message to those people and create that union possibly because we're all connected via our mobile devices and our the internet anyway and yeah i mean you could say some might say that we're going too far but to gary's point you know we're we're making a a, a statement via a cartoon you know an animated web series we're not <laughs> sending soldiers into portland scooping people off the streets and loading them into unmarked vans so you know in perspective it's not really us that's going too far it's the administration that's going too far and this is our commentary on that and they want to call us snowflakes and say that we're the ones that are crying over everything. It's complete and utter bullshit. And it's gaslighting. But think of the statues. <laughs> no, right? There are four fucking statues. Show me, a, <laughs> show me a statue of Rosa Parks or... Um, exactly. Like, you know what I mean? Let's, exactly. let's get some... Anyway. So, episode one is out. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, what have they missed? What's the story so far? Gay. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Farting <laughs> rainbows. The answer is gay. Um, episode one really just sort of sets the stage for who these characters are in my mind. It doesn't really go too deep into the politics. And I wanted to do that on purpose because the point of it, you know, we want to celebrate pride. We want to make people laugh. But we also want to make, we want to show people who these characters are a little bit so that when we do jump into the politics, they understand where it's coming from. Um, so... All they missed with episode one is that um, Transgalactica has a bitch fit and Gajax <laughs> farts some rainbows and Pandroid 5000 says some sarcastic things. Um, but and, really and the point of set, episode one was humor. And, and also to, you know, again, to Gary's point, setting up who these characters are, it was important to have a mix of, you know, representation-wise of, of nationalities, um, you know, sexualities, like who, you know, gender bending we have. Uh, a Mexican um, transgendered individual. <laughs> we have um, a half, you know, half Asian, half white, like gay gladiator. Uh, we have a Jewish pansexual <laughs> robot, you know, and um, an African American uh, preacher, Glory B. So we really wanted to be all inclusive of everything under the sun. Um, that's super, super important to us to get to get everybody um, represented. Absolutely, and then. What is next? What's up in store for episode two and then episode three without giving too much away? More gay. More gay. Extra, so much more gay. Extra gay. <laughs> Extra gay. Without giving too much away, there is a dildo missile. There are some meth head strippers. There is... No, episode two really focuses and the setting goes into the white tigers, which is, our, you know, our antagonist, um... Uh, it, it sort of shines a lot of light on racism, 
and bigotry and you know it might look like a direct attack on rednecks and ass backwards people but it is (laughs) (laughs) but it is (laughs) because like we've been fucking attacked by them a million times over the years and i'm sorry but like you want to call us snowflakes no it's time that we at least say something in 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 return so i don't know there's a lot of humor to it but there's a lot of episode two really goes a little bit more into the politics of it all and like what our stance is on that in a funny way but still it really goes there and then episode three kind of like is the culmination of that and this this fight between um you know the pride warriors and and the bigots and you know it's it's all just really a very loosely veiled metaphor for what's going on in this country and that's that's what i think art should do it just send a message so don't forget robin's Robin's debut as a character is also in episode three, which is the pinnacle. I would, if you should tune in, that's why. That's the reason. It is true. <laughs> and that's that's literally the spoiler. But no, um, I, I, I was coming on to, to other reasons to talk about me. Um, but <laughs> this, of course, at, at the moment, we have, we've only met four characters. Um, but I know that you've got a lot of other sort of characters that are lined up to make a, a heroic arrival in the third act. Um that was a conscious decision, I'm assuming, and it gave you more opportunity to go further into representation. Well, 100%. Because one of the things that I thought was really important, and not just because it makes it easier on me, is I want to use all actual LGBTQ people for all the character art. So even the background characters, like in episode three, there's this scene with a protest, obviously. And even the white tigers, like, I want to use all actual people to create all those characters um one because i want this to be a community project and i think being featured within this project like helps unite the community and like also gives people a reason to like share it with their friends and stuff like that um but also i I draw all my inspiration from actual people so it's kind of it was really fun to like create pride warriors that are based on actual people and we are undertaking this um, fundraising effort where if you donate $100 to our cause, which helps us keep these things going, we turn you into a pride warrior and put you in the third episode. So it works on a lot of different levels, but the idea behind this is that um, is that every gay person is a pride warrior inside. And I want every gay person that watches this to be like, well, what kind of pride warrior would I be? And then I want them to be like, well, if I donate $100 to them, I can find out. They'll make me into one. <laughs> so, um, you know, the goal is to, to really unite the community. But I just also wanted to shine light on all of the other gay people within our community and, like, give them a place to shine. And, um, yeah, that's the whole idea behind it. There's going to be tons of tons of other characters. And, Jason, how do people donate their $100 then? Pridewarriors.com, baby. You will see it listed in three different locations now. Um, a big, <laughs> big yellow uh, contribute uh, button um, that you just tap, and, and it'll take you directly to a PayPal page, which is really great. You can use any card, um, and and you know if you can't do a hundred dollars, any any amount is really fine. Um, just anything is really appreciated. Cool. Um, Gary, you're obviously an artist by trade, and we spoke on the last uh, podcast about all of your sort of work around uh, Enter the Reveries. This is your first uh, foray into animation. Um, how have you found it? <laughs> um, <laughs> all of my hair fell out. <laughs> no, it didn't. You can see me. You can see my hair. It's um, just a wig. It is. <laughs> it's always a wig. I want to get a male wig. I keep seeing these ads on Instagram. 
Um, oh, right, the ones you peel back the sides and yeah, it's like a whole other colors. Yeah. They're not going to yeah. be as good as they are. Probably. No. <laughs> um, I forgot the question. No, so animation. Animation. Um, well, let me be honest with you. My, my goal ever since I was a child is just to tell stories. And I've, you know, I, I published a short story at one point. I wrote for blogs for many years, like um, I still do. So, you know, writing, telling stories has been always the point. And when we did Enter the Reveries, to me, that was the, the like a blend of telling stories and also being able to create revenue streams. But animation offers this freedom that the game never did, which is that like I can get my my stories and my ideas, I can get them directly to an audience with no middleman. Um, and because I have control over um, all the artwork and and the storylines and stuff like that, it's like really easy for for me to get that point across and create something that people can immediately see and enjoy without having to like download an app and stuff. So. I actually found it very freeing, and we're thinking of pivoting our company in that direction a little bit, because you know I think our unique selling point is the stories, um, and this will allow me to like you know Stephen King it and just like release a shit ton <laughs> of like stories like over and over and over again like whenever I feel like it without having to like worry about like funding and all this other stuff. So it's going to be the Seagull shared universe. One hundred percent. <laughs> and we've already got it all planned out. Even the future games that we're we're discussing, like we want to do an animation um, element to it, if not just complete animation, because it just it's a lot easier, and there's a lot easier rate of you know return on investment, and, and I get to see people seeing it and liking it, and that's that's been really awesome. So I'm totally into it, and I just want to get better. You know, I had to like learn how to animate mouths in order to make Pride Warriors. So this is literally the first time I've ever done it. So like I'll only get better as I go. And all it takes to see more is a hundred dollar donation at PrideWarriors.com. <laughs> it doesn't any any donation. I'll take a dollar, five dollars, fifty. Have cents. your mouth animated at PrideWarriors.com. <laughs> yeah, we love a good animated mouth. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, apart from the animation, what have been some of the biggest challenges in getting this together? Well, I, I can speak to the to the voiceover part of it. Um, you know, it's it, in your head when you're like, oh, we want to do a cartoon. I think we always get ourselves into these holes where we're like, no pun intended. Yeah. I think that it's it's like, you know, we have to do, put this animation together, but then it's like, oh, you know, we have to do the mouth separately from the arms and the legs, and then you have to do sound effects, and oh, shit, we have to do voiceovers as well, so we have to, you know, get on the hunt, and we're like, oh, so-and-so, no problem, we'll just do the voiceover, but then, you know, what if that person doesn't have a microphone? You know, how do they... So it's just a whole bunch of, like, challenges that you don't really think of that you kind of have to deal with um, after the fact. But um, luckily, our friends have been real troopers. <laughs> we bought some of the microphones ourselves with your hundred-dollar donation. <laughs> um, so it's it's um, it, it's been challenging, but really in a in a cool kind of refreshing way. My um, yes, so so cool and so refreshing. My um, <laughs> my challenges have been more mental, I think, um, because we're a team of two people, and we're not getting paid. This is an indie thing. We're not getting paid for it. Um, so this is completely for the love of doing it. And while I do love doing it, it's frustrating when you don't know how to do things and you have to learn how to do them. It's also frustrating to not have um, inspiration at your beck and call. So you have to force yourself sometimes, which, you know, neither here nor there. Um, one of the challenges that I found really interesting to get real for a minute is in terms of finding actors for the voiceovers. Because one of the things, especially in these trying times, that we have wanted to be very cognizant of is 
you know, using people of color to do the voices for the characters of color. I think it's really important in this, you know, right now. Um, but finding people that are, um, we've had a little, a hard time. And one of the things that I've realized is like, when it comes to all the other characters, I know a million people that I can ask to do all the voices. But when it comes to people of color, I don't know as many. And, you know, it's really, that's one of the things I think is so interesting about doing a project like this. Is it opens your eyes to like tiny biases and tiny biases and tiny instances of racism that you don't even realize. Like the fact that I don't really know as many black people as I do white people. So that's been really interesting. And l luckily we've, it's all come around so amazingly and perfectly and people have like rallied behind the project and, um, and the voiceover actors have been amazing. So um, it worked out in the end, but it's just been, the whole project has been really eye opening, And I think that it should be, if you're doing something during this time that is hopefully going to help or with the intention of making change, it should be opening your eyes to things like that. And it should be creating these questions within you. So all of it's been really interesting. It's all been a challenge, but like, that's what we're here for. Like, it's not supposed to be easy. Like making change isn't easy. Like, otherwise everyone would do it. That's very true. So beyond the two episodes that are coming up, uh, what's your future hopes for the series? I know there's something else coming, but let's not talk about that right now. I'll talk about that in just one second. <laughs> but with, regarding the actual animation series, what's the, what's the sort of hopes for that? So it's kind of, Gary and I talk about, I mean, we have like, a thousand different ways that we can go with this it's uh it's only three episodes and they're only going to be you know between eight eight and ten minutes each the characters are so rich and they all have their own backstory so it would be we were thinking that it might be interesting to kind of take it in a in a direction of really exploring you know the characters like Shantiphany and, and, and pandroid come from a you know a planet filled with emotionless robots um so it's like it's it's a very there's a lot of lot to dig into with every single one of the characters and, and how they came to be and, and where they came from and what their life was before pride warriors we're also in the process of building the rich mythology behind the behind Homotropolis itself. And it is all just this big metaphor for the Trump administration. Um, and there are entire stories that we want to tell about that aspect of it that we don't even touch on in these first three episodes. To me, this these first three episodes are a teaser. And what we really need is some sort of sponsor. Like we need someone to say, OK, we really like this. Let's keep it going. Here's money. Or a production Netflix, company. do you hear us? <laughs> <laughs> or a, a, any production company or any streaming platform is like, you know, we want to keep this going. How can we How can we do that? If we could even get to that point of that conversation, that's where we would love to be. Because what we want to do is we want to keep this going. But we also want to share all the future stories for all the other characters that we have in mind. Not just with this project, but with others. And I really feel like this Pride Warriors could be the door to that um, if the right people see it. So if you're listening whoever you are, <laughs> and, um, then let's do this. Let's make it in something bigger. <laughs> and the last thing is that we are talking about at the end, right at the end of all this, uh, there's going to be a game jam. Uh, somebody quickly tell me about that in like one minute. Okay, I'll do it in one minute because I can talk really quickly. <laughs> and also I'm the one to give a fuck about the game jam. Um, so the point of the game jam for me was that I want people especially LGBTQ people, to be able to create their own Pride Warriors and play them in a game. Um, and so we wanted to do a game jam because we were a gaming company at heart and creating a, a you know, small game around the Pride Warriors. I think the characters very easily lend themselves to it. The backgrounds, like 
it's just a way of getting the gay gaming community really more involved in it because that's what we ultimately want like those are our people and, and that's the community that we we feel comfortable in so you know the game jam <coughs> is just our way of doing that it's our way of increasing it um and creating another product that people can play with but hopefully creating a product where people can create their own pride warriors because that's what i really want is i want to see what people would do with this on their own i really want it to be a collaboration with the LGBT quick community and really see like how far that we can take it. Sure, and it'll be, you know, we're gonna host it on, on itch. We feel it's really the best platform and we're gonna hand over our assets and have, have the community build something, you know, fun. And we're trying not to put too many rules on it. We really want it to be, you know, other than you have to use, you know, our characters, but we want it to be something fun and we really wanna see what people come up with. So when, when it's all said and done, we're going to be basing um, the judging on four criteria, which is originality, fun factor, social impact, and pride factor. So um, we're really looking forward to, uh, to, to tackling this after, <laughs> after we, if we don't uh, collapse from doing the videos first. <laughs> so we'll find out more about the Game Jam uh, as the summer goes on. Keep watching uh, Gaming Magazine for that. Uh, episode two and three of Pride Warriors airs this summer, this August, on uh, Gaming Magazine and across YouTube and Facebook and whatever else. Go and check out pridewarriors.com and give them oodles of money uh, <laughs> to, to get this <laughs> finished and done and, and being as gay as it possibly can. Uh, Gary and Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, bye. Bye. <laughs> That's the end of our episode. A massive thank you to my guests, Izzy, Gary, and Jason. And an even bigger thank you to you all for listening. We're going to be back in two weeks with our next episode. But in the meantime, keep up with all the LGBTQ video gaming stories on Gaming Magazine. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you don't miss any of these amazing stories. We are at Gaming Mag. Take care. See you soon and goodbye. Goodbye.